2: going on right now I'm talking with someone who uh you probably know all about his music you might not know his name you probably do he's he's done a lot of press lately because they're celebrating 40 years this year it is Brian Slagle the owner and founder of the illustrious Metal Blade Records there's so many CDs behind me that have the, the 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 trademark of Metal Blade Records so welcome to the show man
3: thanks for having me
2: uh you're welcome um so my first question I, you're a hockey nut uh what's it going to take to get you up to seattle climate pledge arena for a Kraken game
3: uh soon very soon it's uh it's on my list to do as almost as soon as possible because uh <clears throat> they're going to be good by the way uh yeah i don't know if they're going to be good this year but mm-hmm. they're drafting some really really good players uh, uh bernier and and right one two centers i mean that couple of years that's going to be scary but yeah i'm i'm dying to get up there the uh, arena looks amazing and awesome. i got to check it off my list
2: i'm going to see iron maiden there tonight with trivium so it'll be great i was supposed to go to that but uh, a whole bunch of other stuff happens so i'm not there you're a busy man um yeah. your hockey jersey collection is something i've i've spied a bit on your social media or i i can't remember where i saw it but you have a crazy hockey jersey collection i'm a band shirt guy so i have a ridiculous hoarding situation in my in my closet. What's your hockey jersey count? Do you have a count?
3: Yeah, I've got about 2500 jerseys. jesus that's awesome. 800 of them are game worn. I think I might have more metal shirts than that though. I've never really counted those.
2: Yeah. I'm doing a thing right now on Twitter where I just was like, you know, I'm going to wear a band t-shirt every day until I run out and see how many I can get up to. I'm at like 148 right now, so yeah, I think that might take years for that potentially. <laughs> and then at the end, you just have an insane like laundry day,
3: right? Yeah, right. Uh, laundry month,
2: laundry. Yeah, exactly. You got to pay for the the mass laundry uh, on that one. So, Matt, congratulations on forty years of Metal Blade. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I was looking back at your catalog. I actually interviewed someone recently from the band Bitter End. Uh, they put out a record on Metal Blade years ago. So I wanted to kind of tie that back to the Seattle connection, you know, panic. You know, uh, we we had panic back in the day. We had, uh, you know, we had Bitter End. You know, what, what was your uh, kind of what was your tie to like the Seattle metal scene back in the day? Were these bands that were on your radar? How did you hear about, you know, the Seattle metal scene and whatnot?
3: Well, yeah, it all really goes back to Metal Church in the very early days. Uh, You know, we were going to sign Metal Church, actually, to Metal Blade initially, but this is, you know, way back in the days before the Internet or anything. So, you know, they ended up signing with a local Seattle label because Mm – explain to people that you know back in the day it just made sense for bands to sign with the local label because long distance phone calls were insanely expensive so oh, yeah. trying to communicate with a band was just impossible so bands from New York signed with you know Megaforce and bands from LA signed with us and yep. that sort of thing so I've, but I've been a, a big fan of of the Seattle scene for a long time I was up there actually quite a few times to see mother love bone when they were playing with uh we had a a relationship with capital records at the time and i went up there with their a and r person when everybody's trying to sign them and of Mm -hmm. course i saw them i don't know two or three times and they were phenomenal and I was in very early with Allison Chains because my friend, uh, the A and R guy, signed them. I actually he actually sent me their demo. Said I'm signing this band. What do you think? And I said I think they're amazing. Yeah. So so I've been going up there for quite a while and have a lot of contacts up there. And usually that's what happens when we sign bands is somebody in in a city will say, Hey, there's this really cool band. Check yeah. out the demo, and then you hear it. It's really good, and then you see them. i remember Panic. That's that's a band that had so much potential. I mean, I yep. went up there and saw them a couple times and they were amazing live, too.
2: Yeah. Dude from Panic is in Sanctuary now since Sanctuary is going to be putting out another record. Uh, yeah, that's, year, so, that's awesome. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. So so you mentioned kind of like back in the day you had a relationship with Capitol Records um but one thing that I wanted to to mention is that Metal Blade Records is one of the last like real independent labels like you guys are independent you guys are a, a, a big it's not you know like a basement operation you guys are a global force with you know bands like cannibal corpse like a band like a Marth. what's it mean to you to be independent
3: well i mean it's it's extremely important uh, to me because the first and foremost everything is about the music and and the bands and obviously, you know, all of my friends who owned other labels, both metal and not metal and sold, sold their labels. I mean, almost immediately their reaction was that's the worst thing I ever did. Because you go from, you know, creating something on your own and building it to, you know, selling it to somebody else. And then you have to answer to them if you mm-hmm. want to do anything. And losing that freedom for me would be just terrible. I I, I want to wake up in the morning and do if I want to do something, I want to do it. I don't have to ask somebody to do it. Yeah. And I'm not motivated by money. I, you know, I've had an amazing career and, and I, I've got enough money. I'm fine. I, I'm not motivated at all by that. I'm more motivated by providing a home, an independent free home for you know, our artists to be able to do things without you know, being kind of stuck in the, in the corporate machine. So, yep. um, yeah, I mean, really, it's kind of us and Epitaph that kind of last Absolutely. two you know, big
2: independents that are fully independent. That's great, man. Um, and and uh, you know, before before we get a l- more in into the history of of Metal Blade, I was curious about the history, your history of of Metal Shop. Do you remember ever listening to Metal Shop when it was a syndicated show with with Charlie Kendall?
3: Absolutely. In fact, I have I have uh, audio tapes and and vinyl tapes of of those in my archive somewhere.
2: Oh man, I got to hear those. That's amazing. That's awesome. You know, Metal Shop, the only show with teeth. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, Legendary. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. And, and, uh, I was just curious about that. So, so back in the day, you know, it comes down to like, you were, you must've been just a metal nerd, like all of us, right. You, you could, Just a metal head. Just, you know, what was the spark? You know, I'm sure you've told this story many times, but let's get it on record again. What was the spark, man? Were you a big, you know, Zeppelin fan? Were, what, what was the spark to start your label?
3: Uh, no one led Zeppelin. Okay. Uh, when, when I grew up, uh, I, I, the first, uh, Heavy metal of I heard was what my cousin of mine played me Machine Head by Deep Purple, and that changed nice. my life right there. Yeah. I was like, what, what is this? And then about a week later, my neighbor said, "Hey, if you like Deep Purple, you should listen to Black Sabbath." And so that began me, you know, going down the. The hole there the heavy metal hole but you, you know when we get when we cut fast forward to the new wave of british heavy metal i had heard iron maiden on i was a, a big cassette tape trader back in the day and yeah. a guy from sweden that i was trading tapes with sent me the iron Maiden demo and i was like wow what is this this is mm-hmm. amazing and then the first album came out and i got i got completely immersed in the new wave of british heavy metal which of course if you don't know it was a scene in the late 70s early 80s yeah in england that spawned iron maiden saxon def leppard on and on. Uh, and I became obsessed with the whole thing. You know, I was living in L.A., so it wasn't a lot you could really do yep. about it. But um, I got really into that, and that really inspired me a lot. And I ended up working at, I ended up starting the first ever U.S. heavy metal fanzine called the New Heavy Metal Review. R-E-V-U-E. I don't know why, but that's what they called it. Uh, then I started working at a record store. I started programming a local radio station to have their metal show. I was really at the record store that you know I was initially i didn't realize that there was anything happening in la i was just importing all the you know all the european stuff you know the Marshall fade and accept and all the new Way of British of the metal stuff and one day one of the guys it, it, that would come in and buy a lot of stuff from me said hey you know there's metal bands in la and i said there are and i said yeah so the first show i saw was motley crew and rat for a wow. dollar on a wednesday at the troubadour i was like oh wow There really are good bands here in LA. And there was a scene actually happening unbeknownst to really anybody because again you're talking you know 1981 and 82 when there was no internet no nothing so it just kind of lived in this vacuum and it was frustrating to me because nobody knew it existed outside of LA. No labels were going to touch any of these bands so I just got the idea based on the independent attitude of the new wave of British Shaving Metal because they would put out these compilation albums I thought, well, maybe if I put out a compilation album of LA heavy metal bands, you know, sort of, I, some people would buy it. I talked to the distributors that I was buying the imports from, and they said, sure. And I put together the record, and that was the first metal massacre. And it kind of, I was just a metal nerd trying to help. I couldn't play an instrument, so I figured, well, i got to try to do something else. So that's kind of where it started
2: man I, I i have such parallels to to like that story you know i worked at a record store i start i started a punk hardcore metal fanzine when i was a kid not a kid or more, more so just like 15 years ago but seems like a kid but uh you know like all these things and it's like man that what what a cool trajectory you know like just just uh you know starting as as diy just doing it yourself and then you know fast forward 40 years and you know you have the biggest label in in metal so Man, that uh, when uh, you look back at that time, you know, like, what was what was the initial goal of Metal Blade? You know, was it just to to put out your friend's band? There's
3: was, there was no goals at all. At yeah, time. I mean, look, I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time, really, because there were so many great bands that were happening in L.A. And then, you know, the other famous story is this kid named Lars Ulrich moved from yeah. Denmark to L.A. And uh, my friend ran into him in the parking lot of a Michael Schenker show. And, yep. you know, we all started hanging out together. And, I, you know, he came because he was also, of course, obsessed with that same scene. And, and as were my friend John Cornarins and I, And I, I think he came to L.A. not expecting to know anybody that would know anything about the scene. And, you know, week in, he's all of a sudden hanging out with these guys that have the same interest that, that he did. And Of course, yeah. you know, he went on to, to put together a band that ended up on that first Metal Master record that that did okay. Um, but there was never really a goal or anything. I had no money. I, I was able to scrape it together enough money to put out the first pressing of it. Then I had no money and I made every mistake possible on it. But one of the distributors uh, named Green World said, you know, we know you don't have any money, but you seem like you might have something going on here. So we'll give you a pressing and distribution deal. So if you can bring us bands, then, you know, we can put them out and and actually, you know, pay for the manufacturing. So I still didn't have any money, but I went to the bands and said, hey, if you can record something uh we can actually put it out so you know early stuff was like armored saint and bitch and you know a whole bunch of stuff and slayer came on a a little bit later and you know it just kind of grew from there but there was no mission there was no you know goal i was just a young kid kind of flying by the seat of my pants just seeing where this thing was going to go it was going to go anywhere
2: when was the like holy moment like was it slayer was it the release of slayer was it i mean you know you, you got the metal massacre out there and i'm sure it did pretty and well
3: i don't know there was a singular moment really because it was a long period of time where i was working you know in the back of my mom's house in a in a in a room with no air conditioning which in woodland hills which 106 was a lot of fun in the summer but uh, i didn't care um yeah. so you i was just doing I was just you know you kind of heads down just you know blinders on just doing this every day and i was doing everything at the time one-man show so but i do think that the one the the time where it seemed to change more dramatically was when hell awaits came out mm-hmm. like you know when show no mercy came out it was really good and I, honestly when Armored Sank got signed to chrysalis that was big for us because you know they gave us the first little bit of mainstream coverage and all the magazines and yeah. stuff. but really when hell awaits came out you know even making that record it, i felt there's something really special here you know we had done show no mercy and we had done the on the chapel ep and the live ep and they were, they were build, clearly building to something but that record was kind of like i think this is going to be really big and that that was kind of the the record that really more or less started really put us on the map i guess
2: yeah I'm, you know, visually metal blade has had like these different eras, right? So I have a harm's way hoodie that has the blade, you know, and then we got, uh, I remember twitching tongues they put out, they kind of brought back the, uh, the, the, um, ax for a little while. And then you guys started to really bring the ax back and, and, and then there's the pirate, uh, kind of theme and the, and the skull. So like, as far as like branding and imaging, what's your, what's your favorite? Do you have a favorite?
3: Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, we've gone through, you know, basically four logos. We had the, the Bloody Axe logo, which was the very first one, which was probably my favorite. It's it's very remedial, but it, it looks sure. pretty cool. And then we had like just a, a very simple, you know, logo. And then we had our, we call our corporate logo, which actually the Switch guys put on, on their last record. So I went, oh, that logo. Okay. <laughs> and then the pirate logo. I'm The pirate logo is probably the one that's most recognized. You know, we're doing a lot of branding now. Where we have we have a whiskey. Yep. I'm sorry, we have a vodka. We have yep. a rum. We have a beer. We have coffee. We have candles. All these things, and that's all based around at the moment the the pirate logo. But we're doing some 40th anniversary stuff that's got the um, the bloody axe on it too. So, but I, we let the bands decide which logo they want to have on their records. So that's we go whatever logo you want, you can have, because a lot of bands started requesting the, the, the bloody acts, which we yeah. hadn't used for a long time. And, you know, the staff came and said, can, can they use this? I don't care. They can use whatever logo they want. Yeah. We own all of them. It's all, all of ours. So uh, it's kind of fun. And we've got merch for all the different logos now too and stuff. So it, it's been kind of fun and it's, you know, it's a, it's an, you know, branding and album covers and logos yeah. and these yeah. things to me are very important because, you know, as, as a kid, you know, when I first saw you know the first iron Maiden record, it's like, wow, that cover's really cool. That logo is awesome. And and then when Killers came out, I like, Oh my, this is like the greatest album cover ever. And yeah. So you know, I've always been a big fan of of the imaging and the logos. I mean going back to you know, I was a big fan of Kiss and Alice Cooper and mm-hmm. you know, all that sort of stuff where there's a lot of image going on.
2: Oh man. So so when when i say like uh oh actually i'll i'll, I'll leave that question in just a moment so you were mentioning 40 you know doing a lot of things like you got the the alcohol you got the the beer you got you know candles but uh, one thing that you you did and uh, you opened up a a museum in las vegas uh the metal blade museum so tell me a little bit about that do you live in las vegas
3: i live in las vegas i moved awesome. out here about 6 years ago okay. i absolutely love it it's a lot different than people would think living here but it's a so like a small town vibe here everybody here is so really great and so nice and everybody's helpful for whatever you need i've yeah. you know made a ton of really good friends out here which you know i grew up and lived in la for my whole life and and i've spent a lot of time in new york and yeah all, all over the place but uh, and i i loved all those places as well and i have friends that, in all of them but it just this seems seems like a, a, just a more of a of a cool just an overall cool vibe out here. It's just so easy to make friends and you need you yeah. get connections everywhere and stuff. So so anyway, I moved out here and, and considering that the public storage situation out here is way cheaper than it is in L.A., I said, well, why don't we move all our storage stuff to, from uh, L.A. to Vegas because it'll cost us like a, a third of the money. Yeah. So while, while we we're doing that, I'm like looking at all this stuff. And I was like, it's kind of a shame that all these things are just sitting in a warehouse you know 40 years of all the stuff we've done so i got the idea of, of actually buying a house in vegas and just making that a museum so i did that um and then all of a sudden people i didn't really intend it to be anything other than just a cool fun thing for friends and different people to come over but you know I had guys like charlie benante come over and joey veer and people and they say hey can we can we take photos of these and post them on the internet i i don't care so i started posting oh this, this old and- stuff Everybody starts freaking out about it yeah. and, you know, where can we go see it? And I'm thinking, well, I don't really know that we can do that in a house. So <laughs> kind of got the idea. Well, let's see if we can find a spot here in Vegas and just yeah. doesn't make it to make it there. And it, actually, weirdly, the timing was really great for me because when the whole COVID thing hit and when everything was like really shut down for that like, four months or however long yeah. it was, I went in every day and just worked on the museum. So it gave me something to do yeah. for four months where I probably would have done out of my mind if I didn't have anything to do. So so yeah, so it's, it's ready now. We're kind of doing it where we're, we're just picking our spots and selling some tickets. I'm doing like a, a really fun uh, uh, tour of it. And it, we've done a bunch so far. and They've been super, super fun to do so that's kind of where the model is at this point as we're coming out of everything you know we're it's still early in its in its existence i guess and you know we're talking to other museums here because in vegas we've got the kiss museum which is amazing there's uh, zach baggins haunted museum which is really cool and the The mob museum yeah the mob museum that got there's a whole bunch of stuff there's a uh, a hollywood car museum yeah um they're building a punk rock museum here Mm -hmm uh there's also going to be a grammy museum so there's a lot of music related stuff here so we're kind of all talking together about doing stuff but it it just was kind of a fun project to do and it's just nice to be able to show off that stuff to to fans and not just have it sit in a warehouse
2: the metal nerdery of me like dude i just that would be amazing i gotta come down sometime and check out that that sounds amazing um wow yeah that'd be awesome uh so uh, i i was curious about um so what was the first band t-shirt you ever purchased when you were a kid?
3: Wow. That's a really good question. Uh, I don't even know if I have an answer for that. Um, it would either have been deep purple or black Sabbath. Okay. I don't remember which, it probably was one of the two, but I didn't really have a whole lot of money growing up. So yeah. I was more about buying records yeah. at that point. I, like Any penny I had went to buying records. So I don't think I really bought, I'm trying to, trying to remember now because the i i okay i think i i think i've got it now i I think i've i think i finally remembered so my first ever show was kiss uh in la in 1976 yeah i'm old Uh, and i'm pretty sure that was the first time i bought a shirt was there because i don't remember before that really buying a a t-shirt of anything before before that like i said i was all about about music so that that was probably
2: the first one Do you have all of the records that you grew up buying and stuff? Is that still your collection?
3: I have all my records. I have actually, uh, shamefully, I have an entire house here in Vegas that houses all of my music memorabilia. I've got, I kept all my old cassettes. I kept all my vinyl. Like I kept all that stuff. I'm a bit of a, not really a, a hoarder or anything, but I just like, I like to keep that sort of stuff. The only thing I didn't keep that I absolutely regret now. Is I was moving once and I had all, you know, I, I bought a ton of t-shirts, you know, in the, in the late 70s. So I had all the concert t-shirts from yeah. know, all the 70s oh, yeah. and the 80s. And they're all in like, you know, I had a bunch of them. I had a bunch of old ones stored in these these trash bags and I just gave them away. And then, wow. you, know, five, you know, a few years later, I'm looking at these Iron Maiden shirts, whatever, from there. They're selling for like 500
2: Yeah, Yep, The and vintage market now is crazy, you know.
3: Yeah, because idiots like me gave them all away. So yeah. there you go.
2: I, I, I interviewed a guitarist from municipal waste, Ryan waste a couple weeks back. And I asked him this question and it kind of made me think like, I need to ask this question more. So record collectors, you know, music nerds, what is your like prized LP or like a couple of them? Is there, is there like a couple LPs that you're just like, yeah, they could all go away, but this is it.
3: There's a couple of them. I mean, more for the rarities of it. I think, I mean, there's, I love all that new River Chevy Metal stuff. So there's a band called Mithra that put out just like okay. an EP. And I think they ended up putting out an album, but that EP was one of my favorites of all time. And it's mm-hmm. really hard to find. I also have um I also have almost every of the 45, the singles that came out in that new Everbury Chevy Metal time too. So I have it's like a really rare Urchin single, which is uh, Adrian Smith's first band from Iron Maiden. I think there was 25 of these things made. Wow. So I have that. But in terms of albums, probably the rarest thing I have is I have. So uh, we were working with Motley Crue when they were at, at the fanzine and, and the record store when they were starting. And I knew their management. They would take out ads in the fanzine. And mm-hmm. I did a lot of work for Motley Crue in the early days. So they came, these two managers came to my, my mom's house and said, uh, hey, we have 900 Motley Crue records. What do we do with them? I'm, you know, 20 year old kid. I go take them to Green World. They'll sell them for you. Yeah. It's like if I would have known then what I knew now. But I've got like four of those things. There's only 900 of them. It's wow. a black and white logo. I somebody told me they're going for some insane amount of money now. So um, yeah, that's pretty rare. You know, I've got a lot of test pressings. Like I'd you know, imagine the, the early Bellawaits and and uh, uh, Shona Mercy test pressings are, are pretty cool. So there, there's. There's a lot of stuff in there.
2: That's crazy. I mean, you 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 could have a second museum just on your own personal. <laughs> That's amazing, right? dude. The, right? Uh, and and you know you're not a hoarder. You're a collector of cool. T- it's a total difference, man. Yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs>
3: and they're all neatly. It's all it's all kind of put together. Again, the the only good thing about the whole COVID thing was I was able to put together the music museum, and actually the the music house is where the museum used to be. So I kind of transitioned yeah. it. To, so my thing,
2: but at least it kept me busy. So is that what kind of uh, my, one of my questions I was going to ask is like, what kind of kept you sane and kept you busy during COVID? And, and it sounds like, you know, you were busy with just kind of, you know, creating and, and, you know, doing that.
3: Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a large portion of it. Uh, the other thing that I did that I, I, I ripped off from a bunch of people were doing it, but I would do these either Facebook live things, or I was doing them, I think on, uh, on Instagram, the Instagram things were fun. So what I would do is, you know, I had to see all my friends because you couldn't see anybody. So I, I had all my friends on, you know, I had, uh, you know, I'm on, uh Johann from Amata marth uh
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know chris jericho just you know uh, adam d from kills just all my friends and say hey let's do like an hour long like just like we're doing here an hour yep. long live mm-hmm. thing yeah. on the internet just so we can at least say hi and catch yep. up and let people in and i was doing a facebook thing where I just you know have you know just have fans and people just ask questions and stuff so that was really fun and we were able to to be connected to to other people, because that's that yeah. yeah, was the the tough thing. You couldn't, you know, you weren't supposed to leave your house or anything. So right. So between the the museum and the and the uh, uh the my music house and doing that sort of stuff, that that kept me pretty sane through the whole thing. And then I'm a I'm a massive sports fan. So you know, like when the UFC, they were the first like pro sports thing to come back live. So. I watched a lot of that. I had a couple friends of mine. Like we, every Saturday we'd come and we just we just go on YouTube and do deep dives of yeah, you know, let's watch you know all the old Black Sabbath footage or whatever it was. That's so, cool. So it wasn't it, it wasn't really too too bad uh, on my end, thankfully.
2: So you know, personally, it sounds like you got through saying, but like you know, pandemic hits. You guys are a small business, as as big as you are, you're still not a small business, but you're an independent business, right? So you know. What was that like as far as just like, did you guys have like an all-hands meeting? Like, okay, you know, we're going to pause or like, you know, it seems like you guys weathered it pretty well.
3: Well, there was a, you know, when everything was shut down, it was a little scary because we didn't really know, you know, what was going on and nobody could work and nobody could really do anything. But once, you know, things started to ease a little bit, you know, we decided because we we couldn't really put out any any new records because bands couldn't record or anything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're very lucky that we have a very large catalog. So the idea was let's exploit the catalog as much as we can. Let's make as much vinyl as we can, uh, any sort of physical product and let's see how that goes. And we're incredibly lucky that I think really what happened is because all of the fans couldn't go to concerts, you know, they had extra income and I think that they're aware of, the plight of a lot of these bands and how to support them. So the only really way to support them would be to buy either you know stream crazy a lot of a lot of product or buy the physical product and also buy the band's merch. So you know they all of that stuff was happening and for and for us, uh, I I kind of feel embarrassed saying it, but those two the two main COVID years were two of the best years we've ever had because we sold so much product. And that's just a testament to how great heavy metal fans are. I mean, they, you know, they supported it as, however they could. And certainly, you know, it helped us be able to give, you know, nice checks to the bands to keep yeah. them, you know, as afloat as they could be. So so it was really weird because it ended up being absolutely, those two years were, were just incredible. I and mean, of course, again, it's to the, the greatness of all the fans out there for, for supporting, you know, what we were doing. So, but, but it was surprising at first, that's for sure.
2: Well, when you give a metalhead a fifteen hundred dollar check in the mail, what do you think they're going to buy? Yeah, they're right, going to buy exactly. metal, with, you know, like that's what that's a couple but I was, ha- times, I was also
3: happy because we were able to keep our entire staff on the whole time. Yes, didn't let anybody go. Yeah, uh, you know, we did get some help from the government both in, mm-hmm. in in Europe and the U.S., which was helpful. So yeah, but that was that made me happy because you know that's I know a lot of people didn't get to keep their gigs. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that was that that was good. We survived all that.
2: And that, I mean, as an independent business, like that's huge, you know, as an independent label, keeping your entire staff during that two years, that's something to be commended for, man. And that's, that's really cool. So, you know, you guys are got through that and, you know, tours are happening. Uh, Do you, do you get to hit a lot of shows when you're in Vegas or are you more of a homebody?
3: No, I, I I mean, look, before the pandemic, I would go to anything and everything. I I, I think of my spots a little bit these days, although we're we're getting to a good spot, but the problem I have in Vegas is that not everybody plays here, mm. uh, and I'm, I'm trust me, I'm trying to rectify that situation. Yeah. So a lot of times I actually, because I, I have a place in Dallas, because we do a lot of stuff in Dallas. King Diamond is there, so uh, and I love to go to shows in Dallas because the venues there are great.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I'm friends with all the people that work in the venues, so it's super chill. And for me, <clears throat> like the bands when they play in Dallas, there's nobody backstage. And usually they're there are trips for the next gig there it is in Austin or San Antonio or something, so it's pretty pretty east, pretty late bus calls. So you know I could have a three hour hang with these guys, which you normally wouldn't never get. If I went to a show in LA or New York, it's like, hey, how you know yeah. how you doing? And there's four million people there. And you know, even in Vegas, it's always kind of crazy. So so I try to go to as many as I can. It's it's getting insane now because yep. we've got you know, Mother mm-hmm. is out, Marshall Fade is out, Canada yep. Corpse is out. Uh, Revocation is out.
2: Yep. Wanna see them uh, next week? Yep.
3: Yep. So you know I'm I'm planning to see all these shows. The kill switch is out. Yep. Luckily they're playing in Vegas. So yeah. I can to see them here. Uh and, and you know, I gotta travel to see Iron Maiden because they're not playing here for some reason on this tour, which didn't make me very happy, but but it's all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go see them in New York, hopefully. So yeah, I'm trying to go to as many shows as I can now.
2: Nice man. Well, uh, you know, I've I've gone to so many too. I, I just saw, you know, it's 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 almost like a It's like a, it's like a um, embarrassment of riches with the touring. It's just like, man, nothing for two years. And then all of a sudden uh, just boom. It's pretty awesome, man. Um,
3: Yeah. We could see that. I knew that was coming. It was just a matter of time. And I mean, look, most of the tours are doing well, but there are, are not
2: all of them, unfortunately. Sure. So, you know, looking at the entire like crazy catalog of metal blade records, I am curious if there's something that you think is like underrated, something that like you could pinpoint and be like, I thought this was gonna take off, this should have taken off, and it's a hidden gem. Is there anything like
3: that? I don't know if it's necessarily a hidden gem at this point because it's in the decimal hall of fame and all these sort of things, but it was definitely the one record that I thought for sure was gonna be huge, and that's symbol salvation by Armored Saint. Okay. And that's an important record to me because that you know, I, I we I grew up with those guys. They were, you know, one of the first bands we ever signed and they've mm-hmm. remained really close friends of mine forever. In fact Tracy Vera, who, you know, really pretty much runs Metal Blade. She does the heavy work, you know, her yeah. husband is Joey Vera, bass player. So they're all, you know, they're all, they're all family. And, uh, you know, they had kind of broken up after they'd signed a Chrysalis and they, you know, they, they got dropped and they broke up. And then Dave Pritchard, uh, the great guitar player, passed away from leukemia. So they were pretty much done. But they made all these amazing demos. Like so I thought some of the best stuff they've ever done. And so I just kind of started to wear, wear them down. I go, we got to put these out, you know, yeah. th- just for Dave's memory. So we were able to, to get it together. Dave Jordan, who did, you know, Allison Chains and Chains Addiction produced it. We got Q Prime involved to manage them. We kind of put this whole big team together and made what I thought was this phenomenal record. Yeah, And it came out and it did well, but it just, it, it I firmly believe that record came out in 1991, right? If it came out in 1989, I think it would have been huge. But by Mm -hmm. 91, that was, you know, the beginning of the Nirvanas and the the Seattle.
2: Yeah, you have us to blame. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: You know, probably rightfully so killed metal at that point because it did need to reinvent itself. But that's one that kind of always bummed me out. But it's over the years, it's, it's done pretty well. A lot of people know about it for sure. Um, the only one, other one I'll mention right now is that I've kind of been talking about this a lot lately, but there's a band uh, uh, from Canada that I've always loved, a thrash metal band from like, it the, started in the, in the, you know, the thrash movement, it's called Sacrifice, mm-hmm. and they put out some amazing albums that it's yep. just a crime that they're not in that, you know, top five thrash bands of all time, but yeah, yeah their stuff is really good. If you like thrash metal, check out any Sacrifice record, they're so
2: good. I got their cassette tape, so yeah, you know. there you go. just one of them though. I don't have the whole discography, but I do have one of their cassette tapes. So um, you know, we were just you know, celebrating the the anniversary of uh uh of Tomb of the mutilated. I almost blanked there, Tomb of the mm-hmm. mutilated and uh was that uh thinking back to, you know that time, was that the most extreme thing? That Metal Blade had put out at that point, like the most hardcore, like death metal, guttural, like thing to push the boundaries, or was am I kind of wrong on the timeline there?
0: Well,
3: aside from the mentors, which we put out in the 80s, which okay, yeah, probably pushed the boundaries as much as you
2: could. They'll do change.
3: uh, but yeah, I mean, Cannibal Corpse, you know, we didn't really, you know, for whatever reason, you know, we were really late to the death metal party, you know, relapse and and uh. And uh, Eric did a great job of, you know, signing a bunch of those bands and, you know, Roadrunner. But we, I don't know, I just wasn't really into it that much. And then all of a sudden I get this cassette tape by this band Cannibal Corpse. And and uh, I looked at the Mike Faley, who works for us, who's from Buffalo, got yep. it. of course, he's from Buffalo. So he gave me the tape and I said, you should check this out. I looked at the song titles and I said, there's a song on here called A Skull Full of Maggots. I'm going to sign this band, whether this tape's terrible or not, just because of the song title. Uh, And of course it was good. And then, you know, I saw them, uh, I was talking about this the other day too. I saw them in Phoenix, this old place called the Mason jar, which sadly doesn't exist, but it was a tiny little club. But I saw them there for the first time when they toured for the second album and they they were, I was like, Oh my gosh, this band is is incredible. So, yeah. And I, you know, I always like to push the boundaries. And we've got Guar. you know, we got a lot of bands that, that, that hover on the edge of, of that stuff. Uh, but I mean, look, if you just look at how many places they've been banned and everything, then yeah, Cannibal Corpse would would for sure be the most, uh, controversial thing we'd probably put out.
2: Nice man. Well, you know, I mean, at this point, they're like the Beatles of death metal. Like (laughs) they're like, you just hear the people that don't even know death metal, hear the name death Cannibal Corpse and they know what it's going to be. So Ace Ventura helped that too. So there you go. Absolutely. Shout out Jim Carrey. Um so, like, okay, an upcoming band that's you know starting to make some noise. What's a piece of advice you would give them to like get on the radar of a metal blade or or you know any real label? What's a piece of advice you would give to, you know, a young musician?
3: Well, this is what I tell them all the time. First and foremost is write music for yourselves just for the, however many people in the band, write music for yourselves. Don't write it for anybody else. Don't listen to anybody else. Don't listen to managers, lawyers, spouses, whatever. And also do something that's original. Like take your influences, whatever your influences are and put them into something that's original that you guys like. Because, you know, we we have a lot of Marth. I don't need mm-hmm. to hear, you know, if we get demos where hundred bands, selling like a lot of Marth or yeah. you know, whoever it, it is. Take those influences, but do something different because that's really what's going to set anybody apart. And if you look at every single metal band that's come along for the most part, they're doing something different and they have their take on it. And that's the most important thing. Be original, try to do something fresh and different. It's not that not as everybody else is doing. And you know, it might take you a lot longer to to, to get up the tree, so to speak. But yeah. if you're doing something original and different, that's the, the main component to do it, have fun and do it for yourselves and make the music for what you guys want. And don't, don't make it for anybody else. What you think anybody else wants to hear? Nice.
2: Good advice, man. Well, if you had some advice for 13 year old Brian, what advice would you give 13 year old Brian?
3: Uh, Save
2: those t-shirts. Don't give them away. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
3: Probably, I mean, the the one, the one, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes over the, the course of time and you know, learn from the mistakes, but I think the the one thing, the, the thing that almost killed the label was uh, I was so attached to vinyl that when vinyl was ending and everybody told me vinyl was ending and I was, just so stubborn and like, no, no, it's, not. no, no it's not, I'm going to keep making it. Yeah, And then we got an all returned one day and I you know, almost put the company out of business. I, I had to fund the company for about six months on credit cards.
2: Wow. So
3: I think I would have, the 13 year old self probably would have said like, listen to what people are telling you, yeah. <laughs> especially if they know what they're doing, uh, which I eventually learned to do, but uh, it took me, it took me that mistake to, to realize, Oh yeah, we, we I probably should have listened.
2: But you, you know, you, then the, uh, comes a time where vinyl is, you know, the best selling thing and, and you get your revenge, right? Well,
3: the, the, the silver lining, right, was that I, I could not bear to destroy all the vinyl because everybody else was destroying all their vinyl. And sure. I could not bear it. So we had, a, we had a big, at that point, we had a big warehouse in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And, you mm-hmm. know, people would come in and we have this gigantic wall of vinyl. People are like, why why are you keeping all this vinyl? I go, I, I can't, I just can't get rid of it. I, yeah. I can't. Maybe someday, but I can't do it. Of course, as time went on, the vinyl became big again, and yeah. we ended up getting rid of all of that. Uh, and, awesome. and now we can't keep vinyl in stock, which is—I mean, it's an amazing thing for somebody that loves vinyl. But it, it is kind of kind of mind blowing that you know, 40 years later, it's it's selling as much as it is.
2: That that is one thing about you know metalhead specifically. There are a lot of people that buy vinyl and and you know still buy physical media in, in other genres and whatnot, but. In metal specifically, like metalheads will buy the product. I still buy CDs, you know, people will call it an outdated form of media, but I love listening to a CD in my car. I find that my music ADD turns off a little bit if I slip a CD and I pay more attention to it. So yeah,
3: same here. I mean, I still buy vinyl all the time. I have my old record player and I have my CD player all set up. So yeah, I think you know it's it's interesting. It's it's really kind of metal and country are two genres where yep. physical product still is is a big thing. So you know, we ho- I hope it stays that way because I yep. I do like the look and the feel of everything, and especially vinyl, the the artwork oh, yeah. and the inner. But even with CDs, you still have the artwork. You have all the liner notes and things, yep. and it's it's tough to just to listen to a record yeah look i love the the streaming stuff too and it makes it easy i put it on the background or whatever but but there's something about sitting down to listen to a, an, al- an album
2: mm-hmm.
3: also interesting these days uh, i would just have the experience of you know reading the, the lyrics and the liner notes and all that sort of stuff it's uh, I, obviously i grew up doing that so it's something that's important to me but i love seeing yeah. you know all these newer generations doing the
2: same thing that's awesome, man. So let's, you know, keep keep buying music from bands that you love, keep, keep supporting independent labels. Um, and and that's what the you know the metal community does and, and the heavy music community. And like you said, the country music community too. So yeah. um, so just winding down a couple more questions for you, man. Um, last couple of years, you know, were crazy. I'm sure you had some, you know, pretty stressful days. Uh, if you're having a sh- day. What's an album you can put on um, that will bring you back to a good place? Whether it's a calming album, a gnarly album to get your regression out, just something you can put on if you're having a day, like a standby.
3: Oh, there's a lot of them. Uh, obviously, being a fanatical music fan that I am, um, yeah. you know, I'm going to go in kind of a weird, not really weird direction, but, you know, one of my all time favorite bands is Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah. And an album called Fire of Unknown Origin, which came out in like 1981, I think, produced by Martin Birch, who's the greatest producer of all time. I produced almost all of my favorite albums, you know, all the Rainbow stuff, the Maiden stuff, the Purple, on and on and on. But I I just love that record. It came out at a time when I was working at the record store. And, you know, for a while, the the owner was letting me play a lot of heavy stuff, but he had a pretty large clientele. So one day he came in and said, during the day, you got to mellow out. So, you know, I would, you know, play other stuff, but I could play this album because it was heavy, but it wasn't over the top heavy, but I just, I always just love that record. It always puts me in a really good mood. So if I'm having a bad day or anything, I'll, I'll grab that record and, and put it on and just, just check it out. And it, I'm always soothed by that. And it brings me to, to a happy place. Cause yeah. I mean, I love, love, love working at the record stores, you know, just a, a great job to have, you know, turning people on to music. And it was super fun.
2: Some of those albums you you mentioned, you know, I I just, you know, kind of coming off the high of watching the Dreamers Never Die last night, the new Dio documentary. And, uh, you know, some of those albums, you know, you mentioned were Dio. Do you have any memories of of like seeing Dio or meeting Dio? Oh,
3: yes, I'm a bunch. Uh, First of all, one of the nicest people ever. I I haven't seen the doc yet, but I know a lot of people have. I feel bad because they invited me to the South by Southwest thing and I couldn't go. And they invited me to the premiere in L.A. last week and I couldn't go because unfortunately my job is insane at the moment. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, one of the nicest people ever. And I was really lucky enough to meet him on on many occasions. We actually, the, uh, Knock Up the Wolves record, we were at Warner Brothers at the time, and we did all the marketing promotion for that. Yeah. And I really loved that record. It didn't do what it should have done, but again, it was 1991 and mm-hmm. all of that. But I still have a have a real special place for that record. It was really great working with him and Wendy, and, you know, Wendy is, is fantastic as well. Yeah. But probably my my f- funniest story with Ronnie, well, I have two funny stories of Ronnie, tell real quick. Um, so the the first one was, we, we were flying to a um, uh, uh, We'll to, to Japan for Loud Park. And, mm-hmm. and as it was like, I was sitting next to the Napalm Death guys, the As I Dying guys were on, all these people were on, were on the plane. And Ronnie somehow, somebody somebody made a mistake and they put Ronnie in coach. Uh-oh. So we're kind of like, oh, wow. But he didn't really complain or anything. He was fine. But he was sitting next to the As I Dying guys. And they're freaking out because they're yeah. Freaking out. So, and Ronnie's like a super nice guy. So I went over and and, uh, Mike Fahey, who works with us again, went over. We know Ronnie. Mm -hmm. So we talked to Ronnie and introduced him to the other guys and stuff. So they had a, a little conversation on the flight, which was great. And Ronnie was always really nice. Yeah. So they were, um, so anyway, they were backstage at the loud park thing. And they ran into Ronnie and they, you know, he was nice and friendly. And they said, Hey, how do you tell us how to properly do the, the sign, you know, the sign. So he got like down on his, on his legs and just, you know, did this whole like thing of how to showed him how to do it. It was, it was pretty hysterical. That's awesome. Uh, nice. But my favorite moment with Ronnie was uh, when Iron Maiden, I think it was 2008 mm-hmm. and Iron Maiden was playing the forum in LA and Ronnie was there. Yeah. So I was backstage and we're talking to him, I was talking to him, I think Lars was with, was with me, actually Kerry King was there too. But anyway, we are talking to Ronnie and, uh, and I said, we were talking about Maiden, because I think they were doing the, I, think, I can't remember if that was the tour, they are doing the Egyptian stuff again. But anyway, I told Ronnie, I said, one of the greatest 10 days of my life was in London in 1984, where I saw Ronnie, I saw Dio twice uh, with Reich opening. Yeah. On, the, on the, you know, the the, <clears throat> the Egyptian tour. And then I saw Maiden that same week uh three times, all at Hammersmith Odeon, which is like this legendary, amazing thing. Yeah. But it's funny because Ronnie's tour was all Egypt-themed. Okay. And that was the Maiden tour that was all Egypt-themed.
2: That's awesome. So I
3: asked him, I said, Did, were you aware that literally you guys had the same theme going on and, and the, the backdrops and everything were pretty similar? And he said, he said I never really knew about that. But he said, but he hated uh, Habersmith Odeon. I mean, he hated it. He said, I hate that place. Because apparently there's no, it was built a long time ago. There's no elevators. So oh. everything has to be brought up. The stairs, all the equipment, everything. He said it was just a nightmare. So I, I mean, I, I loved the playing, the shows there, but I hated every other aspect of it. I was like, Don't tell me that.
2: Right. You ruined it.
3: my memory. Man. Yeah, but it, it was pretty funny. But yeah, he said he had no idea that it was, that was they were both doing the same, basically the same tour theme at the time. I said, yeah, I I saw both of you guys that week. I was, I was like, did Ronnie leave his setup for, Ronnie right. Lee?
2: Could have practically so, combined oh, yeah. tours, man. That would be, but, epic. but all those shows were, you know, mind blowing. Yeah. Amazing. Man, dude, so many cool memories and so many cool, you know, things that you're making memories, 40 years of metal blade, uh, and of course you can go see a Monomarth on tour. They're going to be going with the biggest metal tour that I can imagine obituary carcass and cattle decapitation with a Monomarth. That's mind blowing. When I saw that, I was just like, okay, so every single band here is a headliner. What's going on here? Like this uh, is,
3: it's going to be great. I mean, they're playing the forum in LA. I think they're, I'm going to actually sell out, which is going to be
2: a huge moment for, you know, the death metal scene. Death in metal selling out the forum. Yeah. It's insane. So sick. Uh, so my last question for you, Brian, we ask everyone, pick a scar on your body, show us if you can, but at least tell us the story of how you got the scar.
3: I don't have a whole lot of scars. I'm trying to think what's the, what's the best. If I still have it, I don't think I still really have it as much. Like I said, I don't really have a lot of scars. I have a lot of, uh, of tendon damage, but I can't really show you that. Okay. Okay. Uh, but, uh, I'm trying to think. I'll, I'll I'll tell you. So I'll tell you. Uh, I'll, it doesn't really involve a scar, but it does involve tended damage. So I'll tell sure. you that. It's, it's kind of a dumb story. So I played baseball from five to to eighteen.
2: Okay. And
3: you know, stopped playing. Obviously, I was good, but not good enough to really do anything with it. So, but it was fine. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we started a metal blade uh, uh, baseball team. Okay. So we were out practicing one day. And these other guys were practice said, "Hey, you want to just do a, You guys want to do a pickup game?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure. We, we got nothing to do, so we're playing this pickup game." It's pickup game. It's just fun. So I'm yeah. playing third base. There's a guy on first, so the guy you know hits the ball into into uh, left field for a single. The guy's running around the base, so I think they're, they're probably going to be, be a play at third base. So you know, i I'm ready for it and you know and the guy thinks it's the game seven of the world series he dives head first into the base right into my knee and hyperextended my knee jesus badly. but the, the thing was i was supposed to go to europe the next day so i didn't go to the hospital or anything you know it kind of felt okay i just put a gigantic brace on it and went to europe for two weeks and and got through it so it hasn't really bothered me too much, but every once in a while, it'll get really painful and I'll think about that idiot.
2: <laughs> Bro, this is a pickup, a pick-up game. game.
3: Like Pete Rose in the World Series or something. What are you doing? But Brutal. That's the best thing because otherwise I don't really have any, I don't really have a lot of fun scars, unfortunately.
2: Uh, I, when I interviewed Phil and Somo, he, he goes, I don't have any scars, but I have a tattoo that says unscarred. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Dude, Ryan Slagle from Metal Blade Records, thank you so much for taking the time, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Support Metal Blade Records and congratulations again on 40 years. Thanks so much. And thanks to everybody out there for helping us get to 40.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds.